They lead. You might even know their faces, but do you know why they are difference makers? Welcome to Difference Makers, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories and insights from Savannah's key players, the men and women who lead our city in commerce, in arts and culture, in philanthropy, in government, and in education. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Thank you for listening. Daniel Carey is following in the gargantuan footsteps of seven women who deserve credit for Savannah being the architectural treasure that it is today. Those seven founded the historic Savannah Foundation a half century ago, and today Carrie leads the group, which is among the most respected and influential privately funded entities in the city. He's only been with the historic Savannah Foundation since December 2008, but has become a part of the fabric of downtown, attending planning commission meetings, extolling the virtues of historic preservation with elected officials and real estate developers, and pedaling his bicycle to and from work even on the hottest of summer days. We're pleased to have Daniel with us today. Difference Makers today by Daniel Carey with the Historic Savannah's Foundation. Daniel's been here for 10 years working for the very well-known, very well-recognized organization. Prior to that, he spent 10 years at our quote-unquote sister city, right, in yes. Charleston, which people tend to hold against him sometimes, but we'll let it slide in here today, working for the National Trust for Historic Preservation. As we always do on Difference Makers, we're going to start with the biographical part. I think most people know who Daniel is, but maybe they don't know that much about him. And my first question to Daniel earlier was a little bit about how he ended up in historic preservation. Did he grow up maybe you know, building origami buildings or drawing beautiful 3D sketches with pencil? And it turns out that that's not the case, and I don't want to spoil it, so I'll let, I'll let you go for it. I don't have enough left brain to do any of that, or right brain. I don't know which half it is, but I don't have it. I don't have those spatial relation skills. Um, but, no, I think, as I mentioned earlier, sort of a, a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is law school dropout. Uh, the long answer is some sensitivity to preservation that my mother instilled in me, and um, it just took a little while to – to germinate and uh but eventually it did and i you know have never looked back so i've been doing this for more than 30 years and have enjoyed every minute of it including living in charleston for 10 years and savannah for now 10 years because two of the most beautiful cities in the world and how fortunate could i be to to live in each and, and to have that sort of um comparison contrast that that i enjoy having that perspective so your mother must have been a a, a history teacher or a great architect somewhere (laughs) no but in my mind yes she certainly taught me a lot but was not an educator just a terrific mother and um uh, you know, she, I think, herself had an appreciation for antiques and history and, and uh, house museums. Um, and so it wasn't a case of her dragging me along or anything like that. But she did expose me to those things. And I think little by little, um, you know, that that uh, indoctrination, if you will, um, subtle as it was, I think, took hold and took root. And um, so when I 
found my path, I think, you know, um, a lot of that was due to her. Mm-hmm. You grew up in another great historic city, right? So she had places to drag you to. <laughs> Pretty good places. Yeah, Louisville, Kentucky, which is a, a nice city. Um, and um, all of my family is still up there. I'm the one that got away. And maybe I'll get back. I'd like to. But yeah, it, not quite the same preservation ethic as Savannah. But Nonetheless, a city that does appreciate its past and um, and also uh, has good contemporary architecture as well. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of that um, formed and informed me as I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And in dropping out of law school, you went against the other half of the family. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, something of a disappointment to my father, I think, but <laughs> short-lived. I mean, he <laughs> loves me and supports me, you know, but... Um, yeah, no, he he practiced law for for decades and decades. Just love it. That that was his jealous mistress, and uh, I think he's happy that I found mine. But um, but he had my brother to join him in the practice, so um, I flirted with it, and um, just wasn't the the right fit for me. Right. Um, but so far, so good. So you drop out of law school you, to get into law school. You have a degree in something else. Probably wasn't historic preservation. How did you make the segue, the transition? Yeah, I was an American Studies undergraduate major, which was terrific because I focused on history and government, mm-hmm. and and I really enjoyed that. And um, but I stayed in touch with one of my professors from undergraduate, and um, she helped. Uh, re-steer me or redirect me after law school to preservation and it really clicked with me and made a lot of sense because um, it was this intersection of history and architecture and environmentalism to a degree recycling buildings makes a lot of sense and um, I, you know I pursued pursued that and um, it just really sat well with me and it was something that I could be I think proud of in terms of trying to contribute something to the community something of value mm-hmm. um, not just um, preserving old buildings for the sake of old buildings although there's nothing wrong with that but I was interested in this and approached it from a larger broader perspective more policy related mm-hmm. now you mentioned earlier you, you really Appreciated historic preservation because the inter- intersection of history, architecture, and you mentioned uh, recycling old buildings. So environmentalism side. Of it. I think so. That and 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 then what I learned when I was in um, graduate school was about planning, about city planning, because I hadn't really been exposed to that. I think a lot of people that don't go to metropolitan planning commission meetings or mm-hmm. zoning board of appeal meetings, and they may just think. Oh, there's a piece of property. Somebody's going to do something with it, but there's a complex overlay of uses and regulations and so on. So it was really interesting to learn that um, in graduate school, and then in my first couple of jobs out of school to get a little better grounding in that. But it all started to make sense. These great organic cities in which we live um, came about mostly in thoughtful ways and mm-hmm. deliberate ways mm-hmm. um sometimes making mistakes but not one was an island <laughs> so but it was <laughs> it was uh it was good and so anyway all that uh just caught me at the right time and i think i was old enough and adult enough where that could mean something to me and i could do something with it right and it's it's interesting i'm sure that that love for historic preservation it's not just professional it kind of seeps into all corners of your life i know that 
you're kind of infamous for being the the bike guy in downtown Savannah. Can you talk about living in an urban setting and how much you appreciate that? I'm an urban dweller. I don't know how urbane I am, but I'm an urban dweller. And I do enjoy not owning a car and living downtown and walking to work and either biking to meetings or I can do virtually everything on foot or on two wheels. And, you know, that's not a statement as much as um, it's something that I believe in and and enjoy and I'm taking advantage of. And and Savannah is a city where, where one can do that and how fortunate we are that we that we have that option mm-hmm. not not too many cities in this country even afford that option but this one does so i'm embracing it yeah. so i assume you must keep a couple of changes of clothes in the office a couple of changes of clothes at uh the npc meeting room it's between the I heat do, and the I, rain i spend a lot of time in the i do keep an extra shirt and tie on hand but i'm also pretty cool adam i don't not not a big schwitzer so. well, that makes one of us <laughs> Let's let's transition a little bit and talk about the Historic Savannah Foundation. I think everybody, if you lived here more than a minute, at least knows the name. And those of us who lived here a little bit longer know a little bit about the history. It's it's a fascinating story. Can you kind of give us a, a primer and a refresher on on Historic Savannah? I can, and you know, I always start with the respect that I have for the seven ladies who uh, imagined this organization when they got together to save the Davenport House in 1955, which in and of itself was a great victory. And they could have just taken a victory lap, called it a day, and moved on, but they didn't. They saw a greater need and a greater purpose, and they formed Historic Savannah Foundation, along with a lot of their friends and relatives, husbands, who sometimes get short shrift, but it's probably about time that husbands get short shrift. Um, So what they saw in terms of an organization that could um, fill a vacuum, fill a need, and and grow out of it and do something good for the larger community was great. And, And they didn't stay under themselves they 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 they, again they they had enough wherewithal they could probably figure it out for themselves but they were smart enough to say hmm just up the road in charleston they're doing some things up there with something called a revolving fund what is that Mm -hmm. so they sent a contingent up there to learn from historic charleston foundation who invented the revolving fund and then we took it back and perfected Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. so that was really great that they they had that long view, they had a mechanism, that they committed their own time and resources, literally their own money, to do all this. And if that's not commitment, or I don't know what is. But anyway, that we stand on the shoulders of those giants and um, really just try to keep it between the white lines and... Um, because they've given us a lot, and um, you know we're we're trying to we're evolving as an organization as a community, so we're doing some things a little different than they used to. But yeah, that was um, pretty heady stuff in the mid fifties. When you say revolving fund, it's exactly what you say it is, right? They, they invested in one piece of property, fixed it up, it sold. They took the proceeds, plowed it into the next property, and on and on and on and on. Right? What what are the numbers today? 50, 63 years later. Yeah. Well, thank you, because I sometimes slip into that sort of technical jargon. I start talking about a revolving fund, as if everybody knows what it is. So, yes, you'd find it very well. It's all private capital, no public money, and 
We do invest in vacant, blighted, historic buildings. We're not gentrifying anybody. We're not displacing anybody. Um, We're taking those that are on their last legs or inches away from going to the landfill, and we're intervening. And, yes, we do acquire them. Uh, We stabilize, mothball, secure the buildings, flip them to a preservation-minded buyer, put a protective easement on the property, which is just on the exterior. Um, And then if we make a little or lose a little or break even, yes, that goes back in the fund, and we go to another one. And some total over the past, because the revolving fund's been active since the early 1960s so Mm -hmm. from from then until now we've saved more than 370 buildings throughout town wow and i know a few of those you save from literally from the wrecking ball as i know a couple of them have had the demolition notice issued yeah quite a few any anytime you see those yellow tags on buildings around town um it's it's time to call historic savannah foundation and we'll do what we can that's right i want to talk about a few properties in particular but before we do that uh it's very interesting to me is is where it started and probably right up until maybe in the 80s or 90s historic savannah foundation was almost a de facto i don't want to call it a governing body because that's not what it is but there wasn't historic ordinances there wasn't a whole lot of review for plans of property particularly in the historic district and what role do you think historic savannah paid was it just basically raising awareness and the whole city saw the uh saw the value of it and started to get involved and do what they could do to kind of be a complimentary piece how did that all come together yeah well you're right for for the first 20 years of our existence roughly from 1955 to 1975 or just a little shy of that we were pretty much it because there was no ordinance um there really wasn't much of a metropolitan planning commission per se and um we kind of did everything we did trees and squares and buildings and um you know all kinds of civic issues and that was good i mean i think we were a catch-all organization because we had to be and we had the um you know the drive and the energy and the support behind it to do all those things and then we i think we as a community and really as organizations evolved into areas of specialization and some some professionalization and um and i think that's good but it shouldn't replace or make anyone else content that oh that organization has it covered therefore we don't have to do anything or we can just pay membership dues and that'll cover it that that won't get it done Mm -hmm. we still need everybody just as we always have it's just that you know we've grown and matured both as a community and as an organization to have some greater specialization i think so um our our role will continue to evolve in 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 that regard um but it's always led by volunteers our board of trustees is all volunteer you know we call upon 100 volunteers a year and they help us and um you know we couldn't do what we do without them so and as some of these other entities have have risen up you guys almost have taken on a role i don't know if you want to embrace this word or not as almost a watchdog and and in some ways that makes you i think as you said earlier some people see you as an organization of no (laughs) can you talk about that perception and 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 
how accurate it is or how inaccurate it is? Yeah. Well, I think we were born out of crisis mm-hmm. when the Davenport House was threatened with demolition. So I think our, our DNA is in advocacy. Mm-hmm. Now, we took on that role of advocacy by acquiring the building, but again, starting the organization and using our soapbox um, to talk about the need for good urban planning and preservation. So we never shy away from that. We don't apologize for that. I think it's necessary. And I think that um, we are fortunate to have a lot of organizations now today that we consider allies and kindred spirits and that work in a very complementary fashion, like the Downtown Neighborhood Association or the Savannah Tree Foundation or any of the neighborhood, other neighborhood associations, um, and, and many more to speak of. But we all kind of come together. I don't think there's much um, duplication. I think it's um, we have our strengths and our various areas of expertise. So, um, I, you know, I think we all bring something to the table. I, I think that sometimes we do stand up against things and we oppose things. It's with the, the longer view in mind, but it's also that no being a path to a different kind of yes. Yeah. It's never no as a dead end, like that's yeah. it, no, go away. It's just not that, maybe something else. And a really good example of that, I think, lately has been the proposed hotel at 7 Drayton, mm-hmm. where that was a vacant old building, and the windows had been removed, mm-hmm. and the new owner uh, is you know, there, and he's got good plans for a, another hotel, and it is a noisy corner. So mm-hmm. his interest was try to minimize maintenance and make the rooms nice and quiet for the guests. Sure. And we're, we're in agreement with that. But the ordinance is what the ordinance is, and it's there for a reason. It's not just blind default to the ordinance. And the ordinances, you know, we're talking about wooden windows here. We're talking about wooden windows right. and, you know, and integrity and, and um, all those things that are basically standards that I think Savannah has often set, certainly needs to live up to, but that the rest of the country and the world looks to us. So I think we have to be the standard bearers. Well, we worked it out. You know, we compromised. And wooden windows are going in that building, and they are double pane, though. So, you know, it, it's not like we just said, heck no, go away yeah. with your um, crazy idea about aluminum clad windows. That wasn't it at all. Uh, and, uh, and it all worked out, and I'm very happy about that. And it's just for that building, though. It's very specific. It wasn't a broad brush um, solution. It was it was tailored to that. Yeah. What I found interesting, because I had the, the – the luck or the misfortune, whichever way you want to look at it, of sitting next to Daniel in a lot of uh, historic board of review meetings back in the day. And these things, for those that don't know, I think they've become shorter. But back then, it was it was it was a five or six hour slog uh, every three weeks or every month. And what I always admired is is you know people talk about historic Savannah Foundation, you think of historic buildings, historic houses. No, they were there advocating even for the the new development to try to make those designs better and fit better in with the environment. And I didn't realize when I went in there how involved that was because, you know, you want this building to fit in with a historic building but not look historic. And it always seemed like quite a tightrope to walk and kind of talk about that side of, of what you guys do. That is, I would argue, the toughest type of architecture to practice, where you're serving two masters. You need to respect the context, but also build something of its time. 
And we really like and are bullish on contemporary architecture, but it does have to work, primarily in terms of height and mass and scale and setback. If you get those big four things right, then the other design elements, I think, can follow suit and work. But yes, I think we are as much as anything a planning organization as we are a preservation organization Mm -hmm. and we try to uh, espouse and push for good contemporary design so that this city can grow and evolve and 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 we can develop new landmarks to say 50 years from now because that's sort of the arbitrary cutoff 50 years and so we're we're trying to just for our part because ultimately it's the architects and MPC and others that are doing the heavy lifting. But for our part, if we can encourage those good designs that create buildings worth preservation, then we're doing our job. Yeah, I think the the K building is probably uh, down on Ellis Square was something that was that, that you guys worked very hard on. It's probably you would consider success. Maybe the hotel on the east end of River Street with the juicer on top, maybe not so much. And now, of course, we're looking at the courthouse annex. So I know you guys were very involved in working with the GSA to get that. And quite frankly, you guys had a lot to do with that. I think the government had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. I think Buddy Carter's office probably had a lot to do with that. But to see that come from what we were going to get to, at least in theory, what we're going to get down the road is, is pretty remarkable and shows the pull that you got. Well, I appreciate that, but I'd, I'd say that, in truth, um, that that's a testimonial to the value of the process. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get those parties together and everyone is negotiating in good faith, and they were, mm-hmm. uh, then I think we're going to wind up with a much better result. It, it won't be perfect. It won't be to everyone's satisfaction. But as you said, we're a damn sight uh, farther from where we were, and um, and I think we're all going to be much better off. And I think it's something that is much more reflective and respectful of Savannah and primarily the Oglethorpe plan. That The Oglethorpe plan is of paramount importance, and that's where everything begins. So you have to start with the plan, and then you go to the overlay of what's on top of the plan, so um, we felt it really important that the government uh, um, respect the plan. Right, right. And we're going to come back to that over okay. our plan. But before we do that, let's, let's talk a little bit about a couple of uh, specific projects you have going on with the revolving fund right now that are on Martin Luther King. Can you talk about those properties? Yeah, and I'm happy to say it's in a partnership, and also maybe it's a lowercase p partnership with the city of Savannah. But, yes, um, I think a lot of folks may remember Meldrum Row. Um, and that area at 34th and MLK, where the new police precinct station is going up. And, you know, there were important historic resources there that were sacrificed, basically, for the new precinct station. But there was one head house, I call it, that we that we saved as part of kind of the compromise. And we're going to work with the city on rehabbing that building, advising on that, um, helping with plans and then ultimately for about 10 years maybe some of its maintenance mm-hmm. so we want to make sure that it's it's a good example and keep serving as such but the idea is to put police officers in that building that will be working at the precinct station so live in a landmark or live in the area that you serve is kind of what we're thinking and similarly at 2205 uh, MLK, we have something else like that in mind, and that is 
to rehab a vacant, blighted, historic building that's fairly prominent on the street and show people what can be done, but also start to take another foray into Kyler Brownville, which is an important African-American neighborhood, a very historic neighborhood, but one that has suffered from disinvestment and crime. And, you know, it's a big one to to take on. So we're going to try to start on the perimeter and then maybe work our way in Mm -hmm. and little by little have some positive ripple effects. Okay. Well, we're going to get into our deep dive segment here in just a moment. But before we do that, let's have a sponsor read. We are pleased today to promote the Paint the Town Pink campaign. Breast cancer has touched most, if not all of us, in some way or another. And each October, we take the opportunity to raise awareness of the disease's dangers and to encourage women to do self-checks and schedule mammogram. As part of the Paint the Town Pink campaign, October 29th is Mammography Day, with St. Joseph's Candler completing hundreds of mammograms at six locations located across the region. Financial assistance is available for the uninsured and the underinsured, so there's no excuse not to get your mammogram taken care of. Call 912-819-PINK, that's 912-819-PINK, today to schedule a mammogram to help us paint the town pink. back with Daniel Carey for Difference Makers today, and uh, we know a little bit about Daniel now. We know a lot about the Historic Savannah Foundation. Let's talk a little bit about Savannah, and, and Daniel mentioned Oglethorpe plan earlier. I think what Historic Savannah does and what Daniel is really an authority on probably dates back to the, the Oglethorpe plan. So let's kind of talk about where we were, where we are. And then eventually we'll start looking at, we'll, we'll go around town and talk about where we're trying to be. But from, from your perspective, sitting here now in 2018 and looking back to 1733, uh, can, you, can you summarize it? <laughs> do, do we have time and, for that? Two minutes or less? Go. <laughs> well, well, it was the ingeniousness of Oglethorpe's plan is in its simplicity but also it's it's the fact that it's so functional and that it served you know x number of families 300 years ago and now serves you know the 140,000 residents plus 14 million visitors mm-hmm. and remarkably all at once <laughs> and just remarkably intact and the fact that it it still serves all those it's just an amazing story. I don't think we can say enough or be thankful enough for this plan that has really guided us. So we enjoyed that plan and um, just lived within it for all those centuries. And then the 20th century came knocking, and in particular, World War II and the aftermath with the automobile and the GI Bill and suburban sprawl. And so, you know, we were fortunate, I think, that that the mass exodus out of downtown wasn't accompanied with a redevelopment of downtown. There was a little bit of that here and there, but by and large, downtown was left alone, and that was good. Mm-hmm. Charleston used to say, you know, too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. And so that was kind of why downtown Savannah, I mean, excuse me, downtown Charleston kind of stayed the way it was. And maybe we had a little bit of that too, but also not long after that, when all the other cities in the area and certainly in the region were zigging, like Charlotte and Atlanta and Jacksonville, mm-hmm. we made the momentous decision to zag. Mm-hmm. And that was to not just sort of 
throw our chips in with suburban sprawl, but to kind of bring it back downtown. And that has served us very well. So now, um, even though folks were not coming to our city in droves in 1965, for example, or even 1975, uh, they are now. And, um, and so now we have this this other side of the coin that we we have to manage, and that's our popularity and the fact that we're a tourist destination, and um, that's good. I mean, we like visitors. Visitors are important to the identity of the hospitality, the hostess city of the South. Hospitality is important. So we just we have a a management issue. It's not a problem as much as it's an issue or an opportunity. And um, it's not easy. And I think we're on the leading edge of it so that there aren't so many places that we can look or learn from. We kind of have to make this up as we go along because others are looking to us. So um, and isn't it interesting that, you know, obviously you have a lot of SCAD students living downtown. You have a lot of longtime Savannians living downtown. You have a lot of people that have second homes downtown or have moved down from from the northeast and are, are bringing a different flavor or the midwest into downtown savannah and you know obviously with that comes some challenges maybe short-term vacation rentals and some some other things but i think the whole idea of having people living downtown and have it be a living breathing community and not just a, an entertainment district, whatever you want to have it, whatever you want to call it, is is pretty vital. And I don't see that necessarily changing. Do you? No, I think that's the great the great challenge that sits uh, on us and before us, mm-hmm. and and that is to maintain that that balance, maintain that quotient, and and in particular the residential quotient. I think that's the most important among the equals, because I do think. Uh, visitorship is important. The tourism industry is important. Commercial industry is important. So on and so forth. But the backbone of it all um, are the residents, the twenty four seven three sixty five resident who you know was the pioneer uh, thirty forty fifty years ago, taking on these vacant blighted buildings and rehabbing them, and then hanging in there. And you know somehow we have to acknowledge and reward them incentivize them to stay because if we don't then i do think we lose some of our authenticity and we shift to something else that might be more akin to an entertainment district Mm -hmm. and visitors today especially heritage travelers are much more sophisticated they want the real thing and they know what it is Mm -hmm. and if we don't preserve it we will lose their business because they will go find it someplace else. And it's a hyper-competitive market. So we ought to do everything we can to encourage and support the resident living in the landmark district and the downtown areas. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense that um, the the more traditional downtown residents 25, 30 years ago are, are gradually being pushed south or pushed out i mean it has to be because of the prices i don't know that it's that so much because i think you know in in this economy and um you know capitalist economy basically i mean i think that build a better mousetrap you know that's just kind of we all buy into that that's that's our that's our mo so i wouldn't say it's a push as much as some of it's a volunteer exodus Mm -hmm. and that is 
uh, we've had it with whatever it Not is. I, I don't know what it is. It, that flat. it is different for different people, but you know, some may be parking, some may be say too many visitors, some may say whatever, mm-hmm. and and so they they cash in and move on, and um, and you know that's you know, entirely up to them. And there's always going to be some natural attrition, I think, but. I'd hate to lose that spirit because those people had the spirit and that long-term vision, and, and they were committed to working with the great volunteer corps. And, you know, I think they got it, you know, the air quotes, they got it. And so you don't want to lose the people who get it because, you know, now you're really marginalizing that group of people and um, and they're not going to have – sort of the, the sway that they need to shape public policy. This is a year that's been very uh, newsworthy for the, the Landmark District, and I think a lot of people would sit there and say this is kind of a watershed time, and you know, I don't know that I believe that because in my 20 years here it's completely, completely transformed. So, you know, I, I kind of understand where people are coming from, but at the same time if you have a little bit of, of perspective, maybe you're not completely buying into that, but – the one thing we did have this year was the change in the status um, to – I'm going to mess it up, so I'm just going to say a change in the status. And, and I know you are involved in, in observing that. Can you kind of walk us through and, and maybe what it – in a greater context, what it means? Sure. So Savannah enjoys National Historic Landmark designation for the one square mile downtown from, from Bay to Gwinnett and MLK to East Broad. And that is something earned, and it's something also bestowed by the National Park Service. So they periodically review the status and the integrity of those NHL districts from time to time. And it had been a long time, maybe more than 15 years, since they had reviewed or assessed Savannah's NHL district. So I I called upon them to do that because – it was time, but also I think this the, the the that area had experienced some change and was experiencing some pressures, and we just thought you know we should get their attention and and let them run run through their processes to to assess us. So they did. Um, I was so pleased, really, that they were as responsive as they were and, and quick to do so. So they engaged a consultant and. Um, hired a consultant to do an assessment report and the uh, the recommendation from the report was that um that the nhl district be listed as threatened mm-hmm. it had previously been in good um condition good status it had flirted with i think watch for a while and then kind of right. went back because to good because of the cat transfer center and that was resolved again a great story of city and county and preservation cooperation um but uh you know was was really in formally still in good condition if you will and so the report said we think it ought to go threatened and that got everybody's attention as it should I, i think that was a healthy part of the process so then the park service sat on that for a while uh considered it stewed on it and sure enough they came back out and agreed and they said yes officially it is threatened now that doesn't mean that our designation is in jeopardy um and i think the most important thing that ought to come out 
of the National Park Service's designation is how does this community respond to that? And there is a difference between responding and reacting. I think we've had some reaction, Mm -hmm. and I think we need to get past the reaction and get to the response. Mm -hmm. And I'm encouraged because we have already had one meeting with city officials, with the mayor and two aldermen, Mm -hmm. about that. How is the city going to respond to this? And I I will say that I was very pleased with the mayor's remarks uh, when the designation came out, because he took it in the way he should have taken it, which is, this isn't a criticism. This is something that's constructive and we're trying to help you now mm-hmm. say look here's how you avoid you know any future pitfalls um do something now get to work and you know i think he and others are ready to roll up their sleeves and do that we certainly are yeah. and two of the specific things mentioned in there which was uh, the lane of the property next to the police barracks and and then the the courthouse annex which we mentioned earlier seem to already be getting some action that those to in terms of the Oglethorpe plan those are going to the appropriate action is going to be taken yes i think the two biggest chunks if you will of the report and the park services um, response and recommendation from the report were how you treat Oglethorpe's plan and and again that's paramount and then the second was how we manage the spate of infill that we have had Um, in terms of both hotels and apartment complexes. Um, We understand the nature of hotels and the economics of hotels and the need for density and so on. But those those have impacts on the integrity of the district. And if it changes the feel and the association, then those are things that have to be taken into consideration. And I think um, the watchword or the cautionary tale from the Park Service to Savannah was – Pay extra careful attention to where and what scale and what magnitude those things come in because they can have a negative impact. And um, the, the better you manage those things, the better off you'll be. Yeah. Speaking of infill within that one square mile, perhaps the biggest one that's going to be coming up soon is is the Civic Center site. You know, the, a new arena is being built outside of the historic district, and there's some thought of going to get rid of the old arena and then what do we do with the johnny mercer theater there's different thoughts on that but obviously at one point in time there was a square there it matched the rest of the city i don't want to necessarily put you on the spot but in terms of infill and and redevelopment there what are the opportunities that are there yeah nothing like having a microphone in your face and they get to ask that question (laughs) the good news is uh the city and its wisdom uh is engaging the urban land institute Mm -hmm. which is a excellent um, group based in Washington, but has experts. So they're going to come in and help us. They're going to facilitate this. And that's what it ought to be. It ought to be a community dialogue and a community conversation. We'll be part of it, as will some other groups. So they'll walk us through that. What's important? What are your priorities? What are the opportunities? And, you know, I see several. I, I mean, I see the value in having the Civic Center, you know, in the landmark district i i I like seeing a venue of that size in the landmark district it's not um the finest piece of architecture in the world unless you're a fan of new formalism but um but i understand you know the value that it serves or that it provides and i I wouldn't just want to just whisk that away and um because i think we ought to encourage 
all those urban dwellers like me and my friends and, you know, to be able to access things like that downtown and not have to go west, mm-hmm. even if it's only a mile, mm-hmm. you know, that's not really a walk. So anyway, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, 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 I can't wait to kind of have them walk us through their you know their flow chart of you know questions and answers to see where we wind up but i can certainly see value in um removing the arena and maybe redeveloping traditionally part of that also see some value in maybe renovating the mercer theater Mm -hmm. um and trying to keep something downtown but long way to go on that to be continued on that yeah so a lot of the the real redevelopment spots in town are are outside and a lot of them are are bordering whether it's um uh starlin starlin dairy thomas square area or or the arena district or the farm street corridor where the post office is and we get a lot of development going on down there on the west end river street bay street and then of course the savannah river landing slash eastern wharf development Um, are you getting any kind of sense about or let me ask it a different way how do you think that those areas should or could tie into the whole idea of because they're butting right up against the historic district right but but they are important in their own rights to each of those places that you mentioned like thomas square and victorian and and so, and so on so so the first thing is let's understand them and respect them for what they are and i think when we're approaching development in those areas just as we have done downtown for the most part we should try to make that development and that growth reflective of the context of those. And now those areas that you mentioned are by and large residential. Thomas Square being traditionally pretty mixed, Mm -hmm. um, I I grant that. But it is about scale and it's about density in those areas. So it sounds like those things are increasing and I understand why. But I think we have to be really careful because – the popularity of Thomas Square, I think, reflects the popularity of the Landmark District about, you know, 30 years ago. So they're now seeing and experiencing what the Landmark District has. And, you know, how do we manage that? I don't know yet. Time will tell. But I think knowing what we've learned about downtown, we should apply that to those areas, both both um, victories and losses. You know, we've made mistakes downtown, but let's let's try not to repeat those in those areas. I'm not sure I got to all that oh, you yeah. asked. It was a big question. No, you're all right. <laughs> I, I will I will I will poke you on the on the Farm Street corridor because mm. obviously there's been a lot of development in that area. You've got a brewery, a distillery. You've got a couple of hotels going right next to them. You've got some new uh, um, apartments and condos in that area the post office obviously is a, is a nice big parcel again across across the street it, to me more than anything maybe maybe even more than the eastern wharf that is a, a place that would almost be an extension of an extension of downtown and a key piece 10 15, in the next 10 or 15 years i think you're right that's a keen observation on your part i'll say not to be pandering to you but i mean i think that's i think that's true i think because the Savannah River Landings, Eastern Warfare is kind of a tabula rasa. It was pretty blank slate. You're starting from scratch. But these other areas were more reflective, I think, of our port's history and our city's history. We're more industrial in nature. We're a different scale. They were very low scale because they were just kind of warehouses. And so that, that height and scale is, is changing. And not necessarily for the worse, but 
I do worry sometimes that we sanitize things out of existence. I like a working waterfront. I like, you know, seeing the Moran tugboats. I like seeing ships go up and down and knowing that there's a port right there and this is commerce. And I mean, this is, this is as much a part of our city as anything else. And, you know, I would hate to feel like we're just cleaning it up for visitors or even residents Mm -hmm. and, all of that history is sort of wiped away. And I think there's a way we can, we can do that. Um, I'm not sure we're there yet. We seem to be always playing catch up a little bit in terms of understanding and then trying to apply those things. But when we're, when you're hot, you're hot. And that's when the shovel goes in the ground. That's right. That's right. All right. Before we wrap up, I'm going to, I want to ask you and see if it matches mine. What's your favorite building architecturally downtown <laughs> damn you uh i get the, i get that a lot but i fortunately have a default answer but it's a true uh or a sincere answer and that is the davenport house and it's not it's not just because it's you know great federal architecture and it's not just because that's where historic fantasy but it is the place where preservation began that is ground zero for preservation in this community and the fact that we can still get 45,000 people through there a year and touch them and expose them to the value of preservation. Um, that's great. And I think anyone that we can spark um, the interest in preservation or encourage their participation in it, and then we've done something. And what a great tangible reminder about it. That's right. Well, mine is probably uh, abhorrent to, to the Oglethorpe plan people, but it's a federal courthouse. I just I love the, the look a, of it and yeah. the, the the detailing and everything else. I yeah. can stand in the square and stare at that building for. It's a winner. Yeah, there's so much to look at there. Yeah. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for coming in. It's it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Difference Makers podcast, a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. We post a new episode every other Friday, and it's available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also publish a daily news and opinion podcast called The Afternoon Commute. Search for The Commute with at Savannah Opinion and subscribe to our podcast today.